Good afternoon. Uh, if you're using your pew Bibles, it's page 5 in the New Testament, so the second half of the book. And it's Matthew 6, verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not keep up and... Am I right? Yep. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, good afternoon, church. Uh, let me just add another brief word. Uh, I don't know if Pat and, Pat and Lynn are probably out in the, the Northex again, but when we first joined this, uh, this body of believers when we were at Covenant Fellowship, we had to, my wife and I had the privilege of being in a Pat and Lynn's community group, and they went out of their way just to make us as newcomers feel loved and welcome and accepted and part of the church. And that was, must have been uh, eight years ago in 2010. So, so once again, we're grateful for your labors and honor is much, much deserved. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, God, we, we worship you as our God our maker, our redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us a word that is powerful and clear and changes our hearts and instructs us, instructs us on how to love you and how to walk with you. Be with us. Give us ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever felt stuck speaking with a conversational narcissist? Someone who just talks and talks and talks only about themselves. A narcissist is someone with an excessive interest in and admiration of themselves. It's from the Greek myth about a young man named Narcissus, a proud and handsome young man. This man, when he saw his reflection in a pool, he fell so in love with this image, didn't realize it was his own image, that he got so fixated on this image that he stared at his own reflection endlessly until he died. Couldn't break away. One guy writes about his own experience trapped as he was surrounded by conversational narcissists. He writes, after about six months of, quote, friendship, these people turned to me as someone to talk to, as I'll always seem to be interested in their daily affairs. The difficulty is that after listening, they don't seem to give the slightest about my own daily affairs. They just want to talk about themselves. And maybe you've been stuck speaking with a conversational narcissist. And when that happens, you don't get a chance to share about your own thoughts or emotions or input. You're not asked to contribute to the conversation. You might say, we're thinking about getting a puppy. And then they turn it right around and say, well, I'm thinking about getting a puppy too. And then they go on and on and on. They never circle back to what you were saying. That can be frustrating. It can be frustrating to get dumped on. But it's not surprising Thankfully, most of us have enough sense to know that if we want to keep 
friendships, keep relationships. We can't only be concerned about ourselves. But we have to admit it. It's in our nature to focus only on ourselves, our needs, our wants, our desires. In our passage today on the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to speak into our temptation as disciples to become conversational narcissists when we pray. Our temptation to just talk and talk and talk about ourselves and make prayer primarily about ourselves instead of God. In our passage today, this is the big idea I want to leave you with. Because our Father already knows our needs, prayer isn't a battering ram into God's treasury, but a security pass into kingdom headquarters. Because the Father already knows our needs, prayer isn't a battering ram into God's treasury, but a security pass into God's kingdom headquarters. So not a battering ram, but a security pass. Before I go uh, into the passage, if you're new to us, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Matthew, sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. Right now we're in the Sermon on the Mount. The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is about a king and his kingdom. What is his kingdom about? Well, one theologian puts it this way. The essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. So a king and his kingdom, recreation, what was once ruined and destroyed by sin is being remade into something new by the Holy Spirit. So the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the king in the book of Matthew. He is the king overall. And his kingdom is the kingdom of light, rolling back the kingdom of darkness. And King Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us kingdom ethics. How we as disciples, as citizens of the kingdom, how we should live life in God's kingdom. Last week, Tim spoke on the audience of one. How we need to check our motives. We can do the right thing, religious things, good things, but do it for the wrong motives, wrong reasons. We can do it to be praised by others, to be seen by others. Instead, the disciples of Christ are called to a higher standard, to perform for the audience of one, the Father, the Father who sees and will reward. And so the temptation for us is to be, as Tim talked about last week, is to be hypocrites. Like when we pray, when we give, when we fast, we can do it for the applause of men instead of the approval of God. And hypocrisy is really just pretending to do something for God when we're really just trying to impress other people. We're really just a fake. But hypocrisy isn't the only temptation in prayer. As we see here, we can become a conversational narcissist. If you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, in one of the scenes in the third installment, Return of the King, there's a scene where the evil orcs are trying to break into the human city, Minas Tirith. It's that beautiful white city on the side of the mountain. The orcs have this battering ram, but it's really getting, getting nowhere. So one of the commanding orcs barks out, bring up the wolf's head. And this wolf's head, this is a 60 feet high, 100 feet long battering ram the size of an enormous tree. And the orcs have given its name Gron. So as, as they're bringing up this battering ram, they're chanting its name, Gron, Gron, Gron. And Minas Tirith is, is, is this strong, powerful fortress. It's got these doors and gates that 
aren't easily broken into. So if the orcs are going to have any chance of getting in, they need Gron to break in to minister. Theologian Matthew Hobbes says, writes, Prayer is not some battering ram by which we gain entrance into God's treasury. So let's see what Jesus does say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. This Greek word translated heap up empty phrases means babbling or speaking many mindless words. And the Gentiles operate, the pagans operate with this mindset of a one-to-one correlation between the number of words spoken in prayer and results. You might recall from Elijah's contest with the 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, right? You've got Elijah, he builds an altar to Yahweh. The 450 prophets of Baal build an altar to their false god. And both sides have this sacrifice and they call upon the name of their god. And the god that answers by fire will prove to be the true god. And the prophets of Baal, the 450 of them, from morning to noon, they call upon the name of their God. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Heaping up empty phrases. In Jesus' day, Roman officials would go through the motions in their prayers. They would read their prayers to pagan gods. And they had to do it exactly the way it was written and specified. If one syllable was off, if one ritual gesture was incorrect, the whole prayer would be invalid. And even today, Tibetan Buddhists use a prayer wheel when they worship and pray. They spin this prayer wheel and they pray. And the idea is that the more you pray, the more you spin, the more merit, the more wisdom you receive. But there are less obvious ways we might be heaping up empty phrases. Uh, even in the church, there have been times where, where God's people have used prayer beads or prayer ropes to ironically track the number of times they've said the Lord's Prayer. But let me hit a bit closer to home. How many of us have put our mind on autopilot when we're praying over a meal or when we're expected to pray at the beginning of a, of a meeting or something? Uh, we can go through, we as God's people, we can go through the motions and prayer, pray mechanically, pray out of habit. And sadly, we can repeat prayers mindlessly, just like the Gentiles. Heap up empty phrases where we run our mouth, but our heart isn't engaged. And we as disciples, disciples of the King, we can be tempted to go through the motions of prayer just like the Roman official, or just like those who use the Tibetan prayer wheel. And we as disciples, we can be just as guilty of being conversational narcissists. That we can turn prayer into something that's all about ourselves, our needs, our wants and desires. We can change prayer into this battering ram, gron, 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 an exercise in self-absorption. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Even there, in the act of prayer, self is intruding. And the temptation is for him, the one praying, to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself, and really to worship himself rather than God. Lloyd-Jones makes the insightful observation that sin follows us even into the presence of God. And Gentiles might heap up empty phrases when they pray, but, but 
God expects differently of his people. We as God's people pray differently. And before I go further, I want to clarify so that there isn't any misunderstanding. I want to clarify some things that Jesus isn't saying in this passage. Jesus isn't saying no long prayers. You remember at the start of his ministry, at the start of Jesus' ministry, he went up on a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus isn't saying no persistent prayer. Remember, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And in the parable of the persistent widow, the question is asked, well, won't God grant justice to his elect who, what? They cry out to him day and night. And finally, Jesus also isn't saying no repeated prayers here. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember, it wasn't once, wasn't twice, but it was actually three times that Jesus prayed to his Father, if possible, let this cup, this cup of God's wrath, going to the cross, if possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Three times. So let's look at verse 8 to see what Jesus really is saying right here. Verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So what Jesus is forbidding here is mindless repetition. Mindless repetition. And God's people, we pray differently because we have a different relationship. God is our Father. The Father who has created us. The Father from whom are all things and for whom all things exist. But I need to pause here before going further because even though God the Father is creator of all, He is not Father to all. The problem is that we are, each one of us, we are separated from our Creator by our sin. That we have failed to honor God as we ought to. And the root of all sin is that we would rather worship and serve and find pleasure and joy and satisfaction in something else other than God. We would rather worship or serve anything or anyone other than God. And when the human race fell into sin, when we sinned and rebelled, when we fell, the whole human race was plunged into sin and misery. And that means we worship something else, anything else other than God by nature. And in our culture, in our day and age, it's the God of self. Self Self-actualization. Self-sufficiency. Self-confidence. And that leaves us, the God of self leaves us morally and spiritually bankrupt. And we know better. And so that also leaves us guilty. The penalty of sin, as the Bible describes it, is death. Physical and spiritual death. The judgment is described as eternal punishment, everlasting shame and contempt in a place called hell, the lake of fire, a place that's so horrific that our human words can barely scratch the surface. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet under God's wrath and his judgment, his curse, Christ died for us. We broke the law. But God paid our fine. Jesus paid our fine with his life's blood. The perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if you have not yet come to Christ, come to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can come to him even today, even this very moment. You can come to him. You can turn to him and be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from sin, saved from wrath and judgment, and saved for eternal life with God in heaven forever. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, you know the truths of the gospel. We who were once far off have been brought near. We who were once not a people, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We who were once God's enemies are now His friends. God who, were one, who was once our judge is now our loving Father. So prayer can only make sense if God is our Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. William Perkins, theologian, writes, Whatever we ask in prayer, we must believe that God will grant it for His Son's sake. Mark eleven twenty four, James 1, 6. Let me pause here and just clarify. We ask. When we pray, when we go to God, when we pray, we ask not on the basis of our worthiness, our reputation, our resume, but on the basis of Christ's worthiness, His reputation, His resume. And we must believe that God will answer and provide for His Son's sake. And then Perkins continues. But this we cannot do unless we believe that God is our Father in Christ, and Christ our Redeemer. And therefore, we must first, by faith, lay hold upon the main promise of righteousness and life everlasting in Christ, which is the foundation of all other blessings we receive from God. Church, when when we are in union with Christ, when we belong to Jesus by faith, that means when we pray, God doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. He sees His beloved Son. He sees all of what Jesus has done for you, His perfect righteousness. So he is smiling at you. He is delighted to hear you when you pray because he sees Jesus. So when you belong to Jesus, God is your Father, Christ is your Redeemer. But this passage does raise a very important question, which is, why pray at all? And let's think about it. If God knows everything, right, if he knows what we need even before we ask, well, why do we need to pray? I mean, isn't it just kind of pointless? Isn't God, doesn't God already know our needs? Can't He just give us what we need already? If prayer isn't a battering ram, what is it? Well, because our Father already knows our needs, prayer isn't a battering ram into God's treasury, but a security pass into God's kingdom headquarters. So as children of God, as sons and daughters of the Most High, we get a security pass into the Holy of Holies, into Kingdom HQ, unprecedented trust and access to God Himself. So prayer isn't so much about giving God information, right? He knows everything. It isn't so much about getting things from God. It's more about a relationship of trust that we have with Him as our Father. This Greek word translated as knows, right? He knows our needs even before we ask. This word knows has a continual force behind it. God knows and continues to know our needs. God isn't just up there winding the clock, letting it go, but He has continual knowledge of of who we are, our needs, our weaknesses, our frailties, our failings. He's got continual intimacy with His people. So that means when you know that the Father, when the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He gave His Son for you, when you know that the Father is for you, so nothing can be against you. When you know that the Father has loved you with an everlasting love, 
when you know that the Father knows even the number of hairs on your head, details you don't even know about yourself. That changes everything about prayer. So prayer is really just an expression of intimacy with our God. He is our God, and we are his people. And Jesus is reminding reminding his people here what they should have already known. He's not giving anything that revolutionary. The people of God should have known, should have remembered that the Father has always known them. That he has always worked great acts of salvation with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. That the Father rescued his people, Israel, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he brought them as a loving Father into the promised land. And then when they lost the promised land because of their sin, the loving Father brought them back in from exile and kept every single one of his promises. Redemptive history, like all through the Old Testament, redemptive history is really the history of intimacy and trust between God the Father and his people. So to paraphrase John Calvin, why we pray. We pray, we pray to stir ourselves to seek God with all our heart, to exercise faith in his promises, and to cast our cares upon him. In summary, that we might declare that from God alone, we hope and expect for ourselves and others all good things. All good things. So we've been given this unprecedented access to God himself, intimacy to the God of this universe. And as we enter in through prayer into the kingdom command center, kingdom command central, we need to remember, though, that that the Father is in charge. Father's still in charge. He's still God. And the Father doesn't necessarily give his child everything we might want. The Father, because he's loving, he knows us, he's given us Christ, Father will provide us everything we need and many of the things that we want, but not necessarily everything we ask for. And this is true even of earthly fathers. My child might want ice cream for breakfast, but I give him oatmeal instead. My children might want a $400 roller coaster Lego set with 4,000 pieces. But I give my children, who are six and four, something more manageable and age-appropriate. So if I, as as a weak and sinful father, do this imperfectly, let's remember how God, the perfect God, the perfect father, he does this perfectly. We're reminded from Romans chapter 8 that the one who did not spare his own son, he will graciously give us all things. And all things doesn't mean that the Father guarantees an easy life for us. Right? The psalm writer in Psalm 119.71 writes, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Did you catch that? It is good that I would be afflicted And in the Father, in His perfect wisdom and sovereign plan, might choose to bring affliction or hardship, or He might choose to bring prosperity. But we must trust the Father's heart, and we must believe that the Father, because He loves us, He doesn't delight in making life difficult for us, but only what is best for us. And if you're in the middle of any affliction or hardship or or, or trial, you must believe that it is only going to be as long as is necessary for the Father to accomplish His good purposes for your life. You need to know the truth about the Father because this will anchor your soul when the storms of life hit. 
you need to see, such as from 1 John 3, 1, what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. You need to see from James 1.17 that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above the Father of lights with whom there's no shadow or turning. You need to see that from Matthew 7.11 that we, even though we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give good gifts to us as His adopted children? And in Luke 11.13, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit, give us Himself? These truths, you need to know these truths so that they will anchor your soul. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Rather than hide from God in our hypocrisy, like the Pharisees, or mistrust Him in our anxiety, like the pagans, knowing these truths, right, we would cast all our cares on Him because we know He cares for us. So do you believe this, church? Church family, do you know, do you believe that He loves you, that He is for you, that He's strong enough to carry all of your burdens, that if you do, then do you cast your burdens upon Him? Do you lay them before Him? Do you bring to the Father, the loving Father, all your cares and worries and anxieties and troubles? So Jesus teaches us, teaches kingdom citizens how to pray using this right theology. And that's where we get the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching us as His disciples how we should pray, how we should approach the Father. And God's people throughout the ages have used the Lord's Prayer and have benefited from reciting it. And in public prayers and in private prayers, there's nothing better than the Lord's Prayer. And yet we must be careful that we don't recite this prayer mindlessly. But it's not just a prayer to recite. When Jesus lays out the Lord's Prayer for us here, He is modeling principles. Principles, the kinds of things that we need to pray for. A structure, a model of things that we need to ask the Father. So in the remainder of my time here, I'm going to go through the, uh, through the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And then next week, I'll cover the second half. And each half of the Lord's Prayer contains three requests. So the total, total of the Lord's Prayer has six requests, three in the beginning, three in the first half, three in the second half. The first three prayer requests are about God's glory. And the second three are about our needs. And the order matters. So the first three, the first is about worship. The second is petitions. The first three requests are about God's glory. They're up front. That means when we enter the Kingdom Command Center, Kingdom HQ, what's most important to realize is the desires of the Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us that before we get to our needs and others' needs, we must start with the great concern about God and His honor and His glory. God's glory is the heartbeat of Kingdom Command Central, of Kingdom HQ. So let's look at verse 9. Verse 9, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This prayer begins with our Father in heaven. And notice the word our. See, we don't just go into our prayer closets to pray in secret. Jesus here is highlighting the corporate aspect of prayer. That it's not, he doesn't use my Father, but our Father. He's calling God's people to pray together as well. 
not just going into the prayer closet. But notice also two truths that are held together about who God is. God is intimate and God is transcendent. Intimate means we dare to draw near to the God of this universe because he is our Father. God is transcendent means he is beyond us. He is transcendent in heaven. God, creator, Lord, and king. God is intimate. God is transcendent are like two wings of an airplane. You only have one or the other. The airplane isn't going to fly. You need both. And if you're missing one or the other, if you're missing one wing, your prayers are going to crash and burn. Let's think about it. If we only believe in a God, in a Father who is intimate, but He's not in heaven, well, prayer is pointless because God's powerless. God might be a nice guy, He might be a shoulder to cry on, but He can't do much. Now, if we only believe in a God who is in heaven, a God who is transcendent, but He isn't Father, He's not intimate, He's not near us, well, then prayer is also pointless because. God is way out there. He's too far for us. We can't reach him. And in first century Palestine, when Jesus was preaching this, these two truths, God is intimate, God is transcendent, would have been radical. You see, Israel, Israel accepted and acknowledged that God was transcendent. See, when they prayed, they had a tendency to multiply titles of God. They called God Almighty God, creator of the ends of the earth. Sovereign Lord, King of Kings. But as one scholar points out, for disciples to refer to God as our Father would have appeared presumptuous. It would have appeared too familial, too close. And yet, we as God's people, who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, who belong to Him, we dare to call Him our Father. We dare to approach Him confidently and boldly. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have confidence and boldness to draw near because He is our Father. He is our Father. We know Him. He knows us and we dare to call Him Father. We dare to use that security pass and get into the Holy of Holies and to approach the God of this universe because that God of the universe is also our Father. But these two truths are radical today, but in a completely different way. Let's think about it. Our culture likes the idea of an intimate God, right? God is a God of love. God is near us. But they don't like, they like, we like the idea of God as our Father. But our culture doesn't like the idea of in heaven. That God is transcendent. That he is infinitely great and mighty and holy. I have the privilege of being a father to three young children. Uh, A privilege and a joy which is merely a shadow, a dim reflection of the joy and delight that God has as our father. My wife Teresa and I, we recently got a bigger bed. We upgraded so that all five of us, including the three children, can be in bed with us at the same time. And when our two boys wake up in the morning, they're four and six, the first thing they want to do is run over to mommy and daddy's room and jump into bed with us. And uh, our six-year-old Timothy, he loves to just uh, jump into my side of the bed, put his head under my arm and just kind of linger, kind of snuggle, and then just kind of stay there until he wants to run off and play. 
But that's a whole other story. But, but you know, when our boys, uh, my boys, they want to eat a meal, both boys must sit next to daddy. And I love being with my children. I love it when, when they sit in my lap or when I'm reading to them, when I'm building Legos with them, when I'm carrying both of them, when I'm carrying two of them in both of my arms. Don't know how much longer I can do that. They're getting big. Uh, but what, what a privilege. I, I, I give thanks to God for the privilege of being a father. In a greater and infinite way, that is how God feels about us as our Heavenly Father. My joy, the joy I experience when my children run up to me, they want me to give them a hug or give them a kiss, is but a dim reflection of the divine joy of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, delights in you, wants you to just crawl into His lap, tell you, tell Him all of your troubles, and simply for you to be with Him. And if we forget the transcendent, that God is both... You know, God is heavenly, God is eternal. We'll fail to appreciate the intimate, who God is. Remember, He is from heaven, but we are of the earth. He is creator, we are creature. He is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. We are from dust and will return to dust. It is this God, this God who is from heaven, the creator God, who is high and lifted up. This God who has chosen to be intimate with us. Because our Father already knows our needs. Prayer isn't a, a battering ram into God's treasury, but a security pass into God's kingdom headquarters. With that security pass, we are ushered into the presence of one who is both transcendent and intimate. And for us as God's people, that leads us to worship and adoration. That's why that first prayer is, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The prayer that we want God, we want God, your name to be honored and glorified and lifted high. The first prayer in the Lord's Prayer is rooted in God's radical commitment to his own glory. God's king, that's what God's kingdom is about. His name and his glory, his power. And, that should, and, that, and the question should be raised for us, is that our primary concern when we pray? Is that our primary concern, that God's name would be honored and glorified by us? And by all people. When we look around Drexel Hill, Delaware County, the United States, and even this world, we just see how so many have no knowledge of God. That there's so little reverence and respect for our God and Father. There's so little love and adoration. But does that bother us? Are we okay that so many people are trapped into darkness and have no knowledge of who God is? And what God has done for us. But God's glory, that, that was the supreme concern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as he went to the cross, as he looked at the suffering that he was about to endure, the honor and glory of his Father was his primary concern. John 12, 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And as Jesus realized the agony that he was going 
to endure, that he would be taking on the sins of his people, that he would be forsaken by the Father for us. His primary concern wasn't his comfort. His soul was troubled. His primary concern wasn't that he would be saved from this hour of trouble, but but the cross was the very purpose he came. It wasn't that his own name would be glorified, but that the Father's name would be glorified. And when you, church, as you are going through times when your soul will be troubled, you you will feel like you need to be saved from this hour, from bills you don't know how you are going to pay, from a scary medical diagnosis. You need to be strengthened with this prayer. Hallowed be your name. Father, glorify your name. We need to know how Kingdom HQ is run. And if we look to Jesus, we see that done perfectly. The Westminster Larger Catechism does a great job of summarizing you know, what this first petition is all about, this hallowed be your name. In the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name, acknowledging the utter inability to honor God rightly, we pray that God would by his grace enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and to highly esteem him, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word works and to glorify him in thought word and deed and to direct and dispose of all things to his own glory hallowed be your name churches is the north star that leads us right to the heart of god his radical commitment to his own glory it's the guiding light the gps that directs every thought every word every deed and as we look at that We realize none of us, even on our best days, desire God's glory like that. We don't pray like that. We don't desire the honor and glory of God's name like that. And may God grant his mercy to us. God give us grace. God forgive us for how we have sinned in our prayers and how we've fallen short. But church, don't be discouraged. Let that sin remind you of what Christ has done, that Christ has taken that sin from you, that he has cleansed you from all unrighteousness, that he he purifies our prayers so they are worthy to go before the Father. So the next two requests build on the first one, hallowed be your name. And they really talk about how God's name can be hallowed, how it can be glorified. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second prayer is your kingdom come. That God, the prayer that God's rule and reign would extend to the ends of the earth. That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And his kingdom comes through the preaching of the gospel. When those who are dead in sin hear the words of Christ and come alive to Christ and then go on to maturity. And that kingdom comes through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his ascension. And his kingdom comes as we, as kingdom citizens, follow the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. When we deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. And so that's what we pray for. We pray that God would give us that grace to work out these kingdom realities in our own lives, that we would see God's kingdom extended to people who are not yet within his kingdom, that we would more fully be faithful disciples of the kingdom. But as we pray and pursue God's 
And as we pray for and pursue God's kingdom, we need to know the order. We first must know and enjoy the Father. Right at the beginning, you know, our Father. Because if we pray and pursue God's kingdom in a way that's not rooted in our relationship with God as our Father, then obedience will become legalism. And then we will feel like slaves. And the Father will be a harsh taskmaster. But if you know God as Father and Christ as your Redeemer, then when you pursue His kingdom, when you pray that His kingdom would come, then it's not legalism, but loving service. It's not obedience as a resentful slave, but as a joyful son. It's not obedience as a duty, but as a delight. Because He is our Father. He has loved us. And we uh, have the privilege of being His children. So your kingdom come. And then the third prayer in the beginning here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as God's will is perfectly carried out by angels in heaven, we pray that His will will be carried out on earth among men. But again, we must know the love of the Father, and then it will be a joy to surrender to His will and to pray for and pursue His will. Because if you don't know Him as Father, it will be impossibly hard. Remember when Jesus, as He was looking to the cross, He prayed, My Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup, let the cross pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See how radical that prayer sounds. The Lord's Prayer, this first part, it's about God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, not our name, our kingdom, and our will. And again, Lord, have mercy on us because so often, as conversational narcissists, as those wielding the battering ram, we make prayer about our name and our kingdom and our will. Thanks be to God. And again, the blood of Christ covers us, makes our prayers acceptable to the Father so that the Father once again sees Christ. Christ, and not our imperfections, not our failings, not the pursuit of our kingdoms, not our sin, but he sees his beloved son when we pray. And we can only pray with that full assurance, full confidence. We can pray with that security pass in our hand when we know the final results, when we know the end. And that security pass gives us a sneak peek into the future. The knowledge of the future will make a huge difference when we pray. When you know that our King, Jesus, King Jesus is coming soon, and that when He comes, the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and He will reign forever. When you know that one day, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When you know that our victory is sure, that heaven is certain, and that the defeat of Satan and evil are guaranteed, that will fuel your prayers. That will give you boldness to ask that God's name would be hallowed, that His kingdom would come, that His will will be done. So church, let us use that security pass. Let us enter boldly into the Holy Holies before the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And church, in our final few minutes, I want us just to, just to take some time to apply God's word together as a church. I want us to take time just to pray in response. Pray that God's name would be hallowed, would be honored and glorified. That his kingdom would come, that his will would be done in our hearts, in the, in, in the lives of us individually, as families, for us as a church, and then more broadly, within our community, within our nation, within our world. So, so what I want us to do is just to uh, look around, maybe find uh, two, three, or maybe at most four people around you, and we're going to take the next... I'm going to take the next five to ten minutes just simply going before our Father, you know, as sons and daughters of the Most High, going before Him to pray these things, that His name would be hallowed, His kingdom would come, that His will would be done. So let's, let's right now, let's uh, break into groups of, of two, no more than four, and let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's, let's ask with boldness. Father, what a privilege it is that we might call you Father, our Father in heaven. We pray that your name would be honored by us, by our church, by the people of this country, that those who dwell in darkness, might see a great light, and they might know you as Father. We pray, God, that you would make our light shine before others, that they might see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. We pray, God, that in our homes, with our neighbors, in our workplaces, that you would give us the grace to deny ourselves daily, take up the cross, and follow you, follow the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would extend your kingdom, reveal your will and your word to us more and more, God, that we might hunger for your truth, your presence, your power. God, give us Jesus. Give us more of him in our lives. We pray, God, that you would, through our lives, God, uh, glorify your, your name, your kingdom, and that we would be more fully surrendered to your will. We pray that that would be a reality for us as a church, that Risen Hope would be a church known for our love for you, our obedience to you, our faith in you, and that would glorify you, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as you head out, let us draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So church, this week, and in months and years ahead, as children of the Most High God, draw near to the throne of grace.